Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Rob. Welcome to Sex, Love, and Addiction, uh, the program that really speaks to the issues of recovery and healing and betrayal and um, and the opportunity to come to terms with what compulsive behavior really looks like when it comes to sex. And I'm always so grateful when you're here. Seeking Integrity does sponsor and support this program. And uh, welcome. You guys know that I always seem to love my guests and tell you how amazing they are. And then every time I say, I say that all the time, I say, I've got an ama- another amazing guest. So I'm just going to say, <laughs> this is Jason Van Ruler. He is a therapist. Uh, he's a professional uh, certified sex addiction professional, a CSAT. He's been hanging in there around the fringes of this work for a long time and wrote a book that I I think is really not only about this, but about the larger question of how do we move on from the painful things in our lives that keep us stuck? We say we want to, but how do we actually do it? And so I'm going to turn to Jason asking him to introduce himself and then let's get talking. Hey, well, thank you so much. I have literally been looking forward to this interview for a long time. So I'm just honored to be here um, and to get to talk with you today. As you said, I'm a therapist. Uh, I practice uh, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, um, but I work lots of people all different places um, and get the opportunity to write and speak and do all the things. But really, for me, what it's always been about is just kind of helping meet people where they're at. And so as part of that, the book was something that was really special to me just because it really honors some of my journey and my story, but also as a way to give people some practical steps to do that thing that we we try to do, right? We declare that we want to do, which is to get past or past, but how to actually do that and move from something very abstract to more practical. So before we get into that, and I, I'm going to jump, you know, after so many years of therapy and still being stuck on everything I ever had going on in the past, only better. I only get stuck half as long, but I want to hear like, you know, what brought you to the field and, you know, what do you actually I have a great question for you, which is, you know, what do you think of working with this population? What is it like? Cause Jason is a younger person, you know, he's a young guy with kids and I mean, he's not young, young, but you know, pretty young and uh, probably in his thirties, I would guess. And I'm curious, you know, I came to this field when it was first starting and here you are sort of, you know, at 30, 40 years later, 30, 30 years later, seeing a sort of pretty developed whole environment and set of education that sort of hit you in the face when you came into it. And I wondered how you found this work and the therapists in it. What has that been like? 
Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that part, that's a great story. I mean, I think for me, um, I know personally some events in my life brought me here. I know I always wanted to be a therapist, but life got really complicated. So I tell people I always knew what I wanted to do. And so that was clear, but the path was complicated. And so it took a long time for me to actually get into the place of being a therapist and being healthy enough that it made sense to. I, I really believe that to be good at what we do here, we have to be healthy for ourselves. And so that took a while for me to show up in that place. And then once I did, I started to work with people who had uh, struggles around intimacy and around sex. And that led me to want to get some training. Wait, Jason, I have to interrupt you. Yeah. Who knows that they, okay, when I was seven, I wanted to be a fireman. Okay. You know, when I was 14, I wanted to be a Barbara Streisand. I mean, I, I understand my trajectory as a child, but no offense, but I have a feeling you were dressed like Frasier, like you were wearing Argos <laughs> socks and plaid sweaters and regions. And how did so yeah. you, I'm guessing you were dressing as a therapist before you even knew you wanted to be one. And who the heck wants to be a therapist when they're not? Uh, I, I just got to hear this. Part I did. I, yeah. I, I always wanted to be a therapist. I mean, seriously. I really did. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> the thing is, is I have always been an old man. I've been 80 years old my whole life. Uh, I'm a little, little Benjamin button about it. And so as a kid, to your point, it's like you were there. I mean, you're describing me exactly. Got the socks, got the corduroys, got the Weegens, rocking a cardigan. Um, and, you know, so my job prospects seemed like a therapist was a good way to go. But quite truthfully, uh, I just, uh, you know, when my my parents were married and they had this really tumultuous divorce. And so a thing that I relied on in the face of all that volatility and chaos was reading. And so what I read was philosophy. Uh, I read philosophy, I read sociology, I read psychology, and I, I've just always been a reader my whole life. And so for me, in those moments as a kid, I think some of it was actually just this fantasy of like what it could be like because I didn't like how it was. And so that created this fascination and curiosity within me about people. And I just thought, man, I want to know everything there is to know about people. And, and I want to understand why we do these things. You know, it's funny that you mentioned feeling like you've always been an old or older person because, and I don't know if this is true for you, I'd be curious, but I grew up with older parents. And so they were a little generationally different than, and I think a little enmeshed. So I was in such an important part of their life that I think I related to adults earlier and more than I related to kids. And so that's how I relate to that. I'd, I'd be curious how you, I think that's a good thing for people to just understand. I think some of us do feel like we were, you know, adults when we were popped out. Can you just say more about that? It really strikes me. Yeah. Well, I think for me, so my parents were probably average age parents, but what happened is they were very focused on each other. And so as they went through this divorce, they didn't have a lot of time or attention to raise kids. And so the people who stepped in were older, right? They were people who had already raised kids and had time and uh, had deep thoughts and, and read philosophy and read poetry. And so in a lot of ways, I was really raised by the next generation uh, past my parents. And so I think for me, that just fit like it felt really comfortable. I didn't I didn't really rebel against that because there was structure there and and there were people with routines. And so I, you know, just kind of you open the Folgers and you make a cup of coffee and you sit down and you talk about how things are going. And we don't make Folgers anymore. No, we've lost that. We go to Trader Joe's where there are 300 choices all owned by Folgers. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, but you did say something that 
you've said a couple, and I, first of all, I appreciate that human beings. And I guess I want to say this to all of us, we are survivors. And although the circumstances we're in may not lead us to being healthy, like we might be, we're going to find somebody, we're going to find a family or we're going to find a grandma. We're going to find a teacher, um, someone who can help lead us into the direction that we need to go. And it sounds like, it sounds like you found that. But I, I do want to say you've mentioned the word divorce a couple of times in your childhood, and I don't in any way mean to be too personal. But I wonder, obviously, that was a profound issue for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if since our what is it like for you to work with so many couples who are on the edge of and question they've got kids, they're in that situation. And, you know, in our world, it's very much in the beginning, like, I'm not going to be with you anymore or this is the end or how do you. What are your thoughts about that when you think back on what you went through and you think about trying to help these couples work it out? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would tell you, boy, it's changed a lot. I, I think I used to probably be a lot more idealistic about it um, because I know how I experienced it. It is. So when you say thought about it, what do you mean? Just about the whole divorce process and about the right, the wrong, and kind of having a, a more distinct view. But I think as I did my own work and got healthy, I started to see it very differently. It's actually become, for me, kind of a superpower in that I think I just have empathy for for all parties involved. I, I get it. Um, and I get that it's not ideal for anybody, right? And in a perfect world, probably nobody would pick it, but they feel like they have to or they're driven to that. And so what's been really cool for me is I, I think it allows me to show up in a space just with a lot of compassion and empathy, but also uh, just kind of saying, like, how do we figure out what to do next and to do that without judgment? Um, but I think for me, that took a lot of work and a lot of trauma work to kind of get to a place of not making it about me. Um, I've always, as a therapist, uh, wanted to help people, but to actually be helpful. And so I've been really aware that my own history, if I'm not careful, will get in the way of the work I'm trying to do. And so I've spent a lot of time trying to kind of get my head on straight about some things that were hurtful to me so that I'm not out there preaching a message to other people about what they should or shouldn't do simply because of my wounds. And so I think that was one of the first things I worked through. Well, I want to say to everybody, this is what makes a good therapist, because when I'm sitting with you, if I don't know enough of what I've been through, then I don't know if what we're doing in the room together is about me or about you or, gee, you know, the ability to look at my past and say, okay, I can put that in a place where I can look at you clearly and not be, and if I'm affected by what you're talking about, I know it's probably not about my past because I know it. Knowing yourself is the key to being a good therapist. I thank you for saying that. But I want I love what you said a moment ago about you have compassion for everyone. And I'm curious about that because we have couples listening for sure who are like, this has happened too many times. I can't deal with it anymore. Or I get this, you know, we loved each other for so long and everything was so great. And then we realized something or I realized something was going on for 20 years and I never knew about it. No, I don't want to be with you anymore. And, and the whole issue of people who've had so much in common and done so much together and had so much more than the infidelity, so much more than the acting out. And now they're having to look through the relationship in a whole new lens. How do you help people come to balance with, should we stay together? Shouldn't we stay together? What was, especially spouses, what was real? What wasn't real? Those kinds of questions. Those are so hard. And, and they're, they're really challenging, I think, because of our experiences and how those experiences color 
how we see things today, right? So now knowing what we know, sometimes that completely changes our view of the relationship that we've had. And it becomes really hard to kind of parse out what what was good, what was bad, what was neutral. And so we get into this place initially, I think, when there's been a betrayal where everything is colored by that. And, and we just feel like uh, there was no good piece. There, there was no good part. And I get that. I totally get it. I also understand that initially that's usually the response and it softens over time, but sometimes it sticks. And so I think sometimes the most helpful thing that I can do when I'm working with a couple like that is just give them space to work it out. I think the challenge is a lot of times when somebody says this, this thing has happened in our relationship or there's been acting out or betrayal, I think unfortunately sometimes people are told to just simply feel differently or they're, they're kind of beat over the head with, well, it wasn't all bad because look at this and look at this. And, but, you know, that doesn't change how anybody feels in the moment. And so what I've learned is people just need to make up their own mind for themselves. Uh, but it's kind of a lost art for us to give people space to do it. Well, and then there's the neighbors. Yeah. Why are you staying with him? Or why are you with or your mom's? I can't believe after, you know, how could he do this and you would stay with him and you deserve better. And, you know, it's funny how everyone who's not in this situation can have an opinion about you're leaving someone or whatever. But you're right. There's pressure on both sides. And the last thing we need to do is join that. Yeah. And, and so I just say, OK, um, I, I tell people my office is in some ways kind of like a fitting room. It's a place to try some things on. And some of the things might fit perfectly and some might not. And I'm not here to tell you which is which. So what I try to do is just allow if the person says, hey, everything is colored by this experience, Jason, and it was all bad. I, I say, like, OK, I hear you. Um, what do we do about that? Where do we go with that? And so what I found is when you just empower people to have the space to process through it, like they figure it out and it becomes clear. But if we have an agenda or we try to pressure people, that actually just pushes them to struggle even more because now they have to do the thing they need to do in silence. Well, it would seem to me that one of the things that we really do have to sell is time, mm -hmm. which is you're in pain now. Let's look at it six months from now. You feel completely violated. You hate yourself and feel like you need to leave. We talk about putting troubled relationships in a safe harbor where we can give them, you know, why don't you give it six months or give it three months? Because you and I, yeah, we have to say to people, what you're feeling right now, may, you may not feel later, but what you're going to do is going to affect everything. Yeah. And I think that's, anyway, this is one of the things I really like about Jason's work is his openness to really letting people do what they need to do, sort of holding the walls so that they can be respectful inside that space. And you do a lot of traveling around, by the way. I understand you treat people in places other than South Dakota. I want to ask you about that since you mentioned it to me earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love to uh, go to beautiful places to offer experiences to people that are memorable. Um, I think some of the most impactful moments we have are places outside of our day to day because it's just too easy in our day to day not to be curious or open to them. And so I think in, in my heart, I've just always loved to kind of serve people and kind of create these wonderful experiences. And so one of the things I do is I create an experience that I'll just tailor make to a couple or to an individual. Do you go to them? Yes. You're the rent-a-therapist. I'm bringing it to town. I'm the rent-a-therapist. I'm like a U-Haul. I mean, you got you to gotta drop me off where you found me, but I'm the U-Haul. Yes. No, and I really appreciate that because there are a lot of couples who are in too much pain or struggling too much to be able to go somewhere to see someone else. And if you can come to them, that's a, a real, a real gift. Yeah. Well, and I find, um, sometimes we even meet in just a neutral place. 
um, a place that neither one has ever been. And in that place, sometimes we're open to ideas and thoughts that we might not have been before, uh, because sometimes we really do need to change our location to change our mind. And so giving some people that opportunity has been really meaningful. And is faith a part of your work? For some people it is, some people it's not. Yeah. You may need, it may depend on who you're with. Um, how does that issue play out in your work or that, that, that meaning of that in your work? Yeah, I think for me, faith is really important personally, uh, professionally, that depends on the client. Um, I think if I wanted to be a pastor, I would have. And so that's not my goal. Uh, my goal is just to love people really well. And, and so if I do that and that's fueled by my faith, I think that's fine. Uh, but it sometimes is just never even spoken with clients because it's but really, does it ground you in your work inside of absolutely. You? Yeah. For me, that that is my stability. Um, and that is the thing that that writes my ship and kind of makes me OK is is my faith. Um, and so I, I get a lot from that um, in prayer and meditation and all those things. Uh, and then I just try to meet clients where they're at, too. And I'm, I'm just thinking about how you talked about surviving the things you grew up with and ending up where, where you have. And you've got to have some degree of faith to believe that, you know, someone who is as downtrodden as you and I have been can somehow turn around and give help to other people. Absolutely. That, that's a, a special kind of miracle. But you work with some organizations of faith. You know some people that I know who I've written books with, uh, Marnie Faree. And so I wanted to get to that because I know you do some of that work. You wrote a book about getting past problems, getting past things that have happened in the past. And I'm going to be really simplistic now. Like, isn't that what therapy's for? <laughs> like, you pay people to help you get past your past. Sure. So why, instead of recommend, recommending a weekend or a workshop, or why did you actually sit and write a book? I mean, you've taken all our careers away from us. That's what we're supposed to do. <laughs> I'm help so people sorry. Get, no, they're just going to read your book, and we're not going to have a job anymore. Seriously, though, what what is it about getting by past the past that you think people don't get in their day-to-day -day lives? Um, I've put that behind me. You know, we certainly hear that a lot. Oh, I hear that so often. Um, and it's usually from people who kind of find themselves over and over again, in the same issue. So for me, yes, therapy is great at helping you get past your past and has certainly helped me. I think for me, a lot of the catalyst with the book was, was literally just realizing that so many people need help that can't afford it or have access to it that I wanted to give an on-ramp. I mean, that's really what it was. I, I think um, if you can afford therapy and that works for you and all the things like that's brilliant. But a large portion of my career was spent uh, with people who are coming out of prison and, and that just wouldn't have been an option. And so when I went to the publisher and kind of sold this idea, I literally said to them, this is for someone who has 20 bucks and a little bit of hope. I want to show them what to do and where to get started. And that for me was really why I wrote the book. You know, you and I are like minds and we'll get back to that question because, you know, all of the podcasts, all of the blogs or books or Instagram or volunteer groups, I mean, the more we give away... And by the way, that is a constant theme that I ask every guest here, which is they have wonderful ideas and they're very interested in all kinds of things. And then I say, well, and you know, you go to therapy and your partner goes to therapy and then you go to couples retreats and then you like, well, what if someone doesn't have any money? Yeah. You know, what if they don't have those resources? How can they find the same path into healing? And I think that's what you want to do. Um, so what's wrong with the past? I mean, so I had a few, a few violent experiences, you know, so I woke up in a, in a trash dumpster at seven. I mean, I can get over that. What, what's the problem? No, seriously. And you guys know, I joke a lot, but what is it about this issue that made you think, well, someone needs to learn more. 
Um, cause people just say, okay, I'm done with that. Moving on. Yep. Well, because we don't actually move on. I mean, I, I think that's what we tell ourselves. I mean, I know when I left, uh, my house as a, as an 18 year old, I did the thing that teenagers do where I declared that I was going to do everything differently. Uh, and they should just wait and see, and they'll be amazed. And then like five years later, I was doing all the same things. And, and the only difference is that I thought I was doing it differently, right? So I, I just ended up in a circle. I came right back to the beginning. Um, and it's not because I wanted to, but it's because I only knew what I knew. Can you give an example? Because, I mean, you don't have to be, you know, too, um, you don't have to drain out too much of your soul. But what do you mean you said, I'll never do that. And there you were. What, what do you mean? Yeah, I think for me, I mean, some of the issues were, were drinking was an issue where I just was like, I've seen that. It's not healthy. It's not going to work. I, I That won't be me. Um, and yet those were the people I grew up with. And so I actually really connected with them. And that made a lot of sense for me. And then money wise, too, I think I said, oh, well, that won't be me. Uh, but I wanted a different life. So I attempted to get a life I couldn't afford and and thought somehow I would magically be able to pay for it later. And and then I couldn't. And so there was kind of all these things in, in that and relationships. I had unstable relationships. And so I think what, what I wanted was different. But what I knew how to get was the thing I didn't want. That's really great that you're saying that because your past was haunting you. Yeah. You really said, I'm not going to, I have, I had a lot of alcohol. I'm not going to drink. You know what? I grew up in this way and I'm not going to let that happen to me as an adult. And you hadn't let go of your past, even though you were determined to let go of it. Right. And I think the, the reason I would tell you, and a lot of what the book talks about is it's because my, my community was the same. And so as long as we have the same community from our past that we're trying to get away from, it doesn't actually encourage us to change. Our community would rather we stay the same. And so what happens is a lot of time we aspire to have something that only a different community will give us. And if we don't have a different community, ours just keeps us in the same spot. What I think I heard you say was one of the first things you have to do to change the past is to be surrounding yourself with different people. Mm -hmm. um, can you say more about that? Yeah. So one of the first things, and I would say even before you surround yourself with different people, the, the first thing is to be honest about where you're at. Because I think so many times we we just fantasize about how it how we'd like it to look um, and we're not honest about how it does look. And so my guess is even you're working with people probably has done this a lot, too, where we just kind of hold the mirror up and we say, like, but how is it really? And and so if you aren't able to do that, um, we're going to have a struggle getting launched. So the first step is really to just say, like, where am I honestly? Um, and then the second step is to figure out like about the places where it's not how I want it to be. Who do I know or who is someone that someone I know knows that is doing that well, or at least it appears to be well. So one of my kind of secret superpowers that people are always thrown off by is that I have just always been willing to ask for help. Uh, that's never been an issue for me. And I understand it's an issue for some people. But for me, um, I've just been willing to say, like, I don't know how to do this. And, and I just find a person who seemingly does. And then I go to them and I say, hey, how do I do this? And sometimes they have a great answer. and Sometimes they have a terrible answer. But when you start to do that, you actually build a circle of people around you who know how to help you and want to see you succeed. And when you do that, things start to change. It's interesting because everyone it's each one of these leads to the other in the sense that if I don't know there's something wrong or if I'm pretending that there's nothing wrong, then I have no reason to look for people who are doing differently. 
And if I don't look for people who are doing differently, then I don't have anyone to ask for help or any reason to ask for help. So you're really, and by the way, you didn't use this word, but denial is really what you're talking about. I think my life is like this, and actually it's like that. I think that the problems are coming from here, but they're actually coming from there. And, you know, reality wins is, is a statement I use a lot. And is, I guess that's, you see that too, is that when people come to us, they don't really understand their effect on themselves or other people. Um, so what, by the way, are these steps in the book, like not who I want to be, who has it to give to me asking for help? Are we going through what's in there? Absolutely. Yeah. So this is some of the framework for the book, but just to speak to what you said, like, yeah, absolutely. The, I think we get so caught up in what we think it looks like that we fail to see how it really is. Oh, I know you say it. You have to tell me just, just in our life, right? We get so caught up in our rhythms, our routines, our behavior. And so we need people to say, but here's how it seems. And here's how it appears. Well, as an addict, I can tell you, I don't want to hear from those people. <laughs> yeah, well, who does? But you can be better right. or not, right? And so... But this is where crisis comes yeah. in. Yeah. And, and crisis is a catalyst. Mm-hmm. That's what they'll listen to. Yeah. It, it, it's true. Not who I want to be. A divorced person, not who I want to be, lose everyone I love. Do you know what the word is? It, for me, it, people tend to, it, it's a catalytic moment when someone is insecure and to whatever degree that is. But in those insecure places, right? I'm insecure in my relationship. I'm insecure in my finances. I'm insecure. When we have insecurity, we seek security. And so those are the moments that are catalytic to changing us. But in those moments, we need someone to tell us the truth about how we ended up there, because the chances are, are typical that we have no idea. Right. We say, well, I'm in this pit and let me tell you how I fell in this pit. And we're usually wrong. Right. The, the truth is different. And I found that the more I, I think the more we get older and the more successful we are, the less likely we are to be surrounded by people who tell us the truth. And that's the challenge. Yes, definitely. Thank you. Uh, now that you have thrown that at an older person, I can say, oh, yeah, I have a lot less interest in knowing who I am the older I get. Leave me the F alone. I know everything. <laughs> um, but you're right. You know, and it, what I really want people to hear here is this is the beginning of the recovery process, which is whether it's through crisis or looking at the mirror, I say, I am not who I want to be. I am not where I want to be. I may not know how I got here or what it's about, but I am open to learning. And that's the first first step for an addict, admitting I am powerless and don't know my way back. And that's kind of what I'm trying to divine, divine with you, determine with you, is that there are some people who say it just doesn't work anymore. I don't want to be this. But addicts are usually fine until they're not. Mm-hmm. Is that different? Yeah, it is different. I mean, I think... I think with addicts, they're they're attempting to cope with stuckness, right? So their belief is a little different in the sense that they don't think the system can change. So they cope with a broken system. And, and that continuous coping buys them time before they end up in the same stuck place as someone who's not struggling with addiction. Only they're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, they're in trouble because the thing is coping costs something. That's not free. One of the ways that the people we work with find out that they are not the person they want to be is through circumstances that they have brought into their own lives. Um, things that they thought were fine, uh, sleeping around, uh, looking at lots of porn, um, spending money on strip clubs, that seemed to be fine um, because I was able to mer- make it work. And once I can't make it work anymore, well, a lot of what comes up is I want to be the person who can make all this work. But how do you help somebody who thinks everything's working to understand that it's not? Yeah, I think... 
I think that's unfortunately a lie we tell ourselves is is it is all working. And and so then sometimes we need the person to say, uh, explain the process. So if it's all working, explain the process, show me the system and then tell me if it's sustainable. And typically, if I ask one of those three questions, it's going to be a no to one of them. Right. And and usually Can you ask them again. Yeah. So is it um, is it working? Like, what is the system? So is it working? Yes, sure, it's working. Uh, show me the process, right? So this is my process. What's the system that supports that? And then is it sustainable? And the sustainable one gets everybody, right? Because what happens is everyone's like, yes, 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 yes. It's just not sustainable forever. Okay, uh, so how long? And then what happens when it isn't? Well, I mean, it all blows up. Okay, yeah, well, that seems like a problem. And, and so I will just tell you, like, personally, I always wish I was a faster learner. I'm kind of a slow learner when it comes to stuff like that. Uh, I'm the guy that waits until the cliff. You know, I'm, I'm just kind of going over the cliff or an inch before the cliff so I can relate. I don't think you're alone in that, yeah. with this population. No, but I can relate to it. But I know that if we wait until we're going over the cliff, our options are a lot more limited. And so what my job is, is just to help people see, like, maybe it makes sense to, to step back off the ledge or to catch ourselves before and to deal with that first. And that often is dealing with our past because our past is usually the thing that's catapulting us to that place. You put a lot of emphasis on community. And by the way, you're very 12 step. You don't talk about it in that way, but coming to realize the depth of the problem, looking around to see who where can I find people who can teach me asking those people for help? I mean, these are the basics of recovery. I don't know if you're mirroring that or not for your purposely, but the, this path of health that you're describing is the same path. It is. Yeah, because it's a path that works. And so as I wrote this book, uh, if you you know read through the book, you'll find that it's these concepts, but it's stories about the concepts. So what I'm trying to do over and over again is just make something that sometimes seems very complicated, very simple, and to give examples of how to walk that out. Because I think so many people are in a position where they just don't know where to start and they might not have the resources. And so it's like, I just want to help you start today. And, and here's how to do it. And there's greater, more in-depth resources that are certainly wonderful and amazing. But like, what if you just started mm -hmm. today? I don't want to. I like the way everything is today. <laughs> no, I just, you know, I keep going around and around on this because this is the hardest part is that, um, you know, crisis drives change in my field. Yeah. And I'll often say, you know, I, in the thousands of people I've seen in treatment, if I've seen a thousand people, 998 of them came to me because they were in trouble. Yeah. You know, I, how many people can I count who said, you know, I just want to be better. I realized one day I wanted to be a better person. And so I thought I'd come to your treatment program. That's just not Wouldn't it be what great, happens. And, that would be amazing. Uh, well, I'd be very busy. It's true. But, and it is hard to keep rescuing people over and over again and pulling them out and saying, you know, it's sort of like, as Pat Carnes would have said, hitting the same nail with the same hammer over and over and over again. But we are truth tellers. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what we're being paid to do, whether people want to hear it or, or they don't. Um, but it sounds like the same path that you have for addicts is what you have for people who come up with any kinds of issues. The past can be whatever it is for anyone, not just addiction. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think our past can be a springboard to something better or something that holds us back. And, and that can be in major ways or minor ways. But I think we all have something like that that gets in the way. And so really why I wanted to write the book is just as an invitation wherever you're at. Now, I think... What I've learned from book sales is a lot of people have read it in crisis or a lot of people have read it post-crisis and found it to be helpful. But I've also gotten some really good feedback from some people who say like, well, I was just feeling stuck 
And this really helped me walk through that. And I think I actually avoided the cliff and that's a win for me. I like that is I'll take oh, that yeah. all day long. So I, what I'm hoping for is to help some people avoid the crisis and then the people who have been through the crisis to recognize it could be different. And there is hope there. You were outlining some specific things. You know, you said, I realize I'm not wanting to be who I want to be, or this is not the life I want to be having. And then, um, and then who, who does have it, who does have the life or is moving in that direction and see if I can ask them how to help me. Those are three of the steps, but I imagine there's some other steps in this process that you wrote about. And I'm just curious what some of those might be. Yeah. Everyone's least favorite is the forgive yourself part. That, that one is, uh, I think, necessary but unpopular, and that is definitely one of the steps. I, I think that so often when we haven't lived the way that we want to live or made the decisions that honored ourselves and, and what we say our values are, we, we struggle to forgive ourselves. And, and what I have seen, whether it's in recovery uh, or outside of recovery, is that if we are unable or unwilling to forgive ourselves, it will sabotage all of our efforts to get better. When you say forgive yourself, you know, most, I think about what I did yesterday, you know, like I got to forgive myself for not fixing that hole in the roof before it rained as much <laughs> as it had here. You're talking about something else I and mean, you're talking about something more than just a thing. What are you talking about? Forgive what? Yeah. I'm thinking about the thing that we all have where we feel we've done the thing that makes us unlovable or the thing that we've done that takes away our value. And then what we do is we kind of leave a candle lit to honor that, to remind ourselves of the broken thing we did, thinking that somehow that honors the people we hurt or the mistake that we made. Penance. Yeah, well, but it doesn't work uh, because at the end of the day, it takes energy and effort to do that and a belief that doesn't support us getting healthy. And so it is important to forgive ourselves, even though it seems counterintuitive. How do you do that? And I know that we're going to spend five and a half hours if I even ask that question. But I think we're going back where we were. How do you identify what you hate yourself for? How do you even identify what you don't think you're lovable for? And maybe we can just stop on that for a minute. Yeah. Well, I think I think we see it in our life over and over again because we we tell it to ourselves. It's the thing mm -hmm. that we tell ourselves when things don't work out. It's the thing that we tell ourselves when we try and we fail. It's the thing that we say when we're sad. It's the thing that we choke back when we start to feel something. We usually know what that is. In fact, uh, when I do speaking engagements, I'll talk about this and I'll just say, like, what is what is the thing that you tell yourself that you, you, you push back, you choke back and everybody has a thing. And so when we get to that place and, and we do some work around kind of figuring out what underpins that. We often find that what we feel was a mistake and maybe it was a mistake, but we often feel. Can you give an example? Yeah, I mean, for people, it can be very different things, but um, it can be someone that they hurt. It can be something that they did as children that they didn't even understand they were doing, but were told was a terrible thing. It can be things they knowingly did that were very, very wrong. Um, so it kind of has a spectrum, but we all have a thing or a couple of things. And then what we do is we say, like, I'll never do that again. And I'm so sorry I did it. And I will just kind of keep this candle lit for that to remind myself about what happened. And I had this profound experience where I, I worked with people who, um, you know, as I had said, were coming out of prison. But I also worked on the other side at times with victims. And I would say to the victims, like, what do you want for the person that hurts you? And I would just think, like, 
in my head and I, I you know I probably wasn't as far along as I should have been at that point but I thought well they would just hate them right they just say like I wish they were dead or terrible things get out a gun yeah and you know what so often I heard just the exact opposite I heard them say uh, you know the thing I would hope for is that they became healthy people and I was a little flabbergasted and I said well why why would you want that right and they said well because then some good came from this if they could have a healthy life, then it meant something. And then it was a stop on the way to something better. And they said, I can't change what's happened. Uh, but if they change what they're doing, it matters. Because then that makes us a story of healing. And I just think like, wow, I heard that that same response, some version of that a couple of times. And I just thought like, that is the truth, though. That is the truth. Is that if we don't do that, we stay stuck. And how do you see that relating to what you're writing about? People get stuck in their being victimized. People get stuck in having caused harm, um, things that are unsaid, things that were said. Um, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And the relationship we have with those experiences. What about addiction? I mean, because that's what I say to myself is like, I ruined their lives. I had sex with other people. I got a disease. I, I, I lied and ruined my marriage. How could anybody ever do? In other words, I'm on the next step, which is when what you believed was bad about yourself has led you to do things that are even worse. Mm -hmm. You know, there are probably layers and layers of reasons to hate yourself. Yeah. And, and maybe uh, for you, you come up with those examples a little easily. Um, and maybe what you're not great at is coming up with the other side of that. And I think, that mm. we sometimes become great at looking for ways to hate ourselves and terrible at looking for ways to love ourselves. And so I think that people always hurt people. Always. I don't think anybody gets out of life without having hurt other people. And sometimes that's very intentional and sometimes it's not, but it's the cost of living. And that's not to minimize what anybody's done, but it's to say, this is part of growing. And the fact that we recognize we've hurt people reflects our growth. And so in that place of growth, do something different. Again, you're talking about recognizing shame, mm -hmm. understanding shame, moving shame to guilt. Not I'm a bad person, but something I did was wrong. Um, you again are following right along and tracking. And I think, by the way, those of you listening, he is tracking the same process that we ask everyone to go through in the therapy, in the recovery process. And maybe that's what you mean by, I can get this to people, even though they don't have the resources to get it is you are walking them through the basics of healing. Absolutely. I wanted to make an on-ramp for that because I know there was a time in my life that this idea of going to therapy or starting down that road seemed impossible. And so for me, I think, how do I meet that person there and just make it practical, uh, but to walk these things out? Uh, and if they stop there, uh, maybe that's enough. Uh, and if it leads to the next place, that's great. But to give them kind of something to fill that gap between having an inclination that there's an issue and getting to therapy. And then get, and also it sounds like you're allowed by giving them grace. Yeah. So now I've got, I see the problem. I see people who are in a better place with it than me. I'm seeking them out. I understand how the flaws that I hate myself for, the things I struggle with and, and think leave me not lovable. Then what? Yeah. Then I tell myself a different story and I live a different story. And so now, now that I've wrestled with some of these things, now that I've admitted some of the places I've been, whether I've wanted to or not, whether it's been helpful or hurtful, I take that and I use that to fuel a different story. And so what we talk about is then 
because of where we're now at, what do we what do we do with that that empowers a better story? And I know, you know, if you're familiar with narrative therapy, I mean, it is changing the narrative. But to see that with some gratitude, we can find that these things that have happened really do change us in ways that are profound and they can lead to positive change. There we are with another recovery notion. You smiled. See, I can't see him. I can see him. You guys can't see him. But we saw that word gratitude. It's like, okay, we'll check another of the box of the recovery process. And then the, then the one after that, which is how can I use these things in a way to, you know, become the person that other people need and look up to. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, and then we need to talk about how people can reach you, is the idea of community. Because what I heard you talk about is I have to surround myself with people who are not reinforcing the way I've lived, but are really setting a path and living a path that tells me, oh, that's the way I need to go. And I know for you and me, we always didn't always have those people around us. You, you seek out people who are going to help you get through. You don't necessarily seek people who out who are going to bring you higher. So what is this thing about community? Why can't I just figure it out on my own? Well, that's a very American way to look at it. And I love that. that that's a great, you know, I'll do it on my own. Um, and, you know, to borrow more from recovery, if that worked, you wouldn't be here. Right. So, I mean, I, I think I think the thing is, is that to do it on our own, we only know what we know. And sometimes that is wonderful. And sometimes that's terrible. I, I know walking into adulthood, I had no idea how to do that in a healthy way. And so for me to do it on my own would have meant just to recreate what I had. And that's what I did. And so it takes different people. It takes different experiences to help us to really see that some change is possible. Um, and so there will be people in your life that will help you to see it because you agree or you disagree. Like it doesn't even always have to be that uh, everybody helps you do exactly what they're doing. Sometimes their role is to help you see the way you'd rather do it. And that's OK, too. And that's what we do. Yeah. We hold out a light for other people and say, you can be this, you can do this, you can get there. So do sponsors, by the way, and other people in recovery. I admire you so much because you have so much wisdom for one who is so young, and I can be in a position to say that. So I really want to understand better how people can find you because they're going to want to reach out and maybe they just have a question or maybe they just want to learn something or all the way to, can you, you know, come into our small town and help us as a couple work on something? How do they find you and what will they need to know? Yeah, they can find me. My website is jasonvr.com. But if you are looking for just kind of more practical tips, Every single day on Instagram, uh, it's jason.vanruler. I post a reel or uh, some sort of post to my community uh, just to be helpful in pursuing whatever a healthy relationship is with yourself and others. And so that would be a place that you can go and you'll find all my content as well as the courses that I have and all, all the other free resources. And where would people find or learn about Get Past Your Past? They can find about the book, um, certainly through my website, but on all major retailers like Amazon and Target. Uh, where's the uh, workbook? That's a good question. In process, I hope. Well, you know, I ask as a being a crazy prolific person, I always ask authors, when's the next book? Because you're probably thinking, thank goodness that's over. Now I get to be with my family again. And I'm like, well, when's the next one coming? I'm actually working on it. I, I've good. got several in the works. Um, it's something I found I really love to do. Uh, and so as long as I'm able to put books out, I'm going to. Well, I really want to appreciate and value Jason Ben Ruler and also say that I want to bring you on for more stuff. Let's do some videos. Let's do some different kinds because I think you have a lot 
of very detailed, useful, practical ways to really help people. And God knows a lot of us just have really airy-fairy ideas and no way to actually bring them down to earth. So I really appreciate that about you and about your work. Thank you for the time you've given us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an amazing conversation. I'm grateful. Any last thing you absolutely want people to know in terms of their own personal healing and growth? Yeah. I think for me to them, uh, the thing that I think is helpful for people to hear is just, it can get better. And I know that sometimes we find ourselves in a position where that just doesn't seem possible or it seems inconceivable, but it's true that it can get better. And just to know that. So he's offering us a note of hope. Yeah. And that's, I think who you are a really hopeful person. So thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to us having some more time together. Yeah, me too. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.